The word in the world. Most of you know the story of Frosty the Snowman. In this fictional child's tale about a magic hat that brings to life a snowman. <clears throat> but I want you to imagine this morning with me that it wasn't a snowman that came to life and it wasn't a magic hat that brought the life. But rather, I want you to imagine you're reading a book. And as you read the words on a page of that book, suddenly the words jump off that page and they come to life. Now that would be a magic book, you might think. If you could see that story unfold in front of you as the words come off the page and begin to live out and to act out what those words said. But actually we're not talking about a fictional tale. We're actually talking about a reality. Because as John tells us in his gospel in chapter 1, that is what happened. The word became flesh. And so when you read your Bible, when you read the scriptures, when Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is so powerful, it's quick and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, this is what we're talking about, that the word of God can do something in your life that nothing else can do. The word of God can go where nothing else can go because it is supernatural. And as we celebrate the birth of Jesus this morning, the incarnation, that's the theological term for God becoming a human, that is what we're talking about, the word becoming a living, breathing person. So look with me at John chapter 1. The first three verses we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him not one thing was created that has been created. In John's Gospel, he, he begins in a way unlike the other Gospel writers. For Mark and Luke, the coming of Jesus begins with John the Baptist. And for Matthew, it goes all the way back to Abraham. But for John, the coming of Jesus goes back much further. All the way back to creation and then back a little more. John wants us to know that the story of Jesus goes back so much farther than you could think or imagine. Some 2,000 years ago when that little baby was born in a, in a manger, in a feeding trough, with animals surrounding because there was no room in the inn. That's not where the story began. The story began much, much longer ago, really in a far away place. The beginning of time, but no, that's not far enough either. It goes back before the beginning of time. How is that even possible? Because Jesus existed prior to all of this. In fact, though the incarnation occurred at just a moment in time, Jesus always Existed. That's what John is trying to get across here. Verse 1 alone is actually saying that from eternity past, okay, from eternity past, the Word was existing and still is existing. Now, I've got to cut to the chase just for the sake of clarity. Uh, I don't want to string you along all the way like John did. But when we see the Word here, the Word is referring to Jesus. Now, you're not going to know that until verse 14 and 17. So you've got to read all the way through. He is he's, he's leading up to that. And he's letting you almost guess, if you will. Now, we in the 21st century, we know because we've heard it. But if you were just reading this or you didn't quite know who Jesus was, you wouldn't have grasped that at first until verse 14 and 17, further down the line. But here in this first verse, it says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. This is actually saying that from eternity past, okay, there's no article. An article is the word the. 
in front of beginning. So even though in, in English it says in the beginning, it's really just in beginning. So it's not in the beginning of a certain time period. It's just in beginning. All right, sounds weird to us, right? So it's not from creation. It's not from Genesis 1. Yes, this should remind you of Genesis 1 because Genesis 1 starts out in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, but we're talking even before that. The word was existing and still is existing. That word was there is an imperfect for the verb to be. Now, why does that matter? Because an imperfect means continuing action. It means that this word that John is talking to us about way long ago always was existing and still is existing. Way before anything was created, the word was there. The word was actually in the beginning. Not in the beginning as in just when creation occurred. In the beginning as in always was. R. Kent Hughes translates it this way. It says, in the beginning was continuing the word, and the word was continuing with God, and the word was continually God. Think about that for a moment. So before time began, what was existing? A relationship between the Word and God the Father. So when, when you see just God the first time, it's God the Father. Okay, But then the Apostle John, as he writes this, is going to equate Jesus with God. So he says the Word was with God. This was a face-to-face, -face social, intimate relationship. That's what he's talking about. That the Word and God had fellowship one with another. That the Word and God were living together before anything was created. Therefore, the word, obviously, was before creation. This very relationship involves a face-to-face, -face, social, intimate relationship. This is why when we did our Believe series several months ago, we talked about how out of this relationship of love between the Father and Son and also the Spirit flows this love into humanity. That's why God is a loving God. He's a, he's a relational God. Not only was the Word always existing in an intimate relationship with the Father, but then he says the Word was God. Now, now how can that be? How can the Word be with God but also be God? Here again, there is no definite article before God. And the reason for that is this is the best way that the Apostle John could say that Jesus was completely and fully God but was distinct from God the Father. So he's fully God, but he's not God the Father. Remember, at this point, there's nothing created, so it's just God. So it's the Father and the Word, and they're there. So there's a singular God, but within this one God, there's a plurality. Yes, I know, that's mind-boggling. So you've got God the Father, referred to simply as God here in John 1. And God the Son, referred to as the Word, not identified, as I said, until Jesus, until down in verse 14 and 17. And then the Holy Spirit, which we won't discover until a little bit later in John's Gospel. Later, as Christians thought about what the Gospel said, and they thought about the life of Jesus and what Jesus said, and, and other people began to come up with other ideas about who Jesus was. Because remember, pretty much the most important question in, in life is, who is Jesus? 
And so all these different competing ideas came up, and eventually they came up with the word Trinity. Now, Trinity's not in the Bible. The word's not in there. And people try to raise a big ruckus about that. Trinity's not in the Bible, you Christians. You just make this stuff up. The word's not. You're right. It doesn't matter. Just throw the word out. We don't need the word Trinity. But the concept is. The word is just simply a way to describe the concept. So the early Christians, as they're wrestling through this, and they're figuring out, well, what did Jesus mean by this? And how does, how does the word and the spirit and the father relate to each other? And they come up with the word Trinity to describe all that. So in the opening verses of John's gospel, we learn that Jesus is eternal, personal, and God himself. God's word, the revealing of himself in speech, which is powerful enough to cause action, has always existed. In Genesis 1, the word of God caused the light to spring forth. God said, let there be light, and there was light. He speaks, and it happens. His words have actions. Literally, they jump off the page, and they do things. Or they bolt out of his mouth and do things. They create. We'll see the words spring forth, and darkness will not triumph, though it will not easily accept the light either. The word, the cause of creation and creator of all things, according to John 1, 3, has come into the world. Colossians 1, 15 through 16, written by the Apostle Paul, further unpacks this, saying that Jesus made everything. So you have these connections between the Apostle John, the Apostle Paul, and how these things of, of the word being Jesus and him being creator all come together. In John 1, verses um, 4 and 5, John tells us that the word, Jesus, is life itself probably referring to eternal life because of the way he uses that word life in the rest of John. So the word, as we've already seen, has always existed. Thus he contains or is life itself. So not only is the word always existing, but because he's always existing, what is he in himself? He is life. He's like the Energizer Bunny, but on steroids, but in reality, right? Because even the Energizer eventually does what? Dies. But not the word. Always existing. Still existing. This life shines his light into the darkness. But those who live in the darkness, whose minds are, are darkened, compared with Romans 1 and Ephesians, they don't understand. Because they live in darkness. But the light comes so that they don't have to live in darkness. In John 1, verses 6-8, John then tells how another John, this time John the Baptist or the baptizer, was a witness and a testifier of these events and of the words life on earth. So John the Baptist, no, he's not the, the life, he's not the light. He's there to testify to and about the one, the word, who's the life and the life. And then in verses 9 and 10, John tells us that when the non-created word came to visit his created world, the created world did not recognize its very own creator. Like a child who didn't recognize its parent. It continued on in blind oblivion. And so in, in John, in these first verses, okay, he begins to unpack who this word is. Who is this living word that became flesh? And then in verses 11 through 13, John tells us that the word, Jesus, came to his own that he had created, his chosen out people. But even they did not recognize him. However, there's hope for some 
do recognize that the word is the giver of life and the light and the sustainer of all life. And, and some do receive entrance into his life, into eternal life, by believing and receiving this revelation from God. The word sent by God, this end days message to God's creation. These people who receive this revelation will be given new life. A life that John unpacks later in the gospel. A life that begins, he says, by being, as he says in John 1 verse 13, says, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. How does this new life, this eternal life begin? It begins by being born again, born from above, born from God, he says. In John uh, chapter 3, um, he picks up on this concept again. And so the ideas that are in John 1 are unpacked later on in the Gospel of John. It's very common. Whatever, whatever is said usually in the beginning is further explained later on. And so in John chapter 3, Jesus specifically expounds on this idea with a man named Nicodemus. I call him Nick at night. Who under the cloak of darkness, think about that, okay? Under the cloak of darkness. In, in John, you've got light and dark. Darkness means they're blind. They don't understand. They're living in sin. Light is Jesus coming in to free them, right? So he comes under the cloak of darkness to visit Jesus, who is the light. So in darkness, he comes to the light. Jesus tells Nicodemus, in no uncertain terms, that he and all of mankind must be born from above, born anew, born by the Spirit, reborn by the living word who had come to light the way through the darkness. And this spiritual truth is lost on Nicodemus as he thinks only in physical terms of birth. But Jesus doesn't let up. So instead, instead, he says in John 3, 3, Jesus replies, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus says there's only one way. There's not multiple ways. I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The word born again, it's used a lot. But a, another way that you could translate this is, is born from above. And we've seen in our study of, of James that we took a break from it this week, but we know when we hear the word above that we're talking about who? God. God. Because every good gift comes down. That means it's coming from above. comes down from the, the Father of lights. comes down from above, okay, the heavenly places. And so Jesus is saying that you don't get into the kingdom by being born humanly. You get into the kingdom by being born spiritually. Jesus follows up with Nicodemus. He says to him in John 3, verse 7 and 8, he says, Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. He's like, what, what is he talking about, Kevin? He's talking about the, the word, the wind, the Spirit of God. He's talking about how God works and operates. Jesus never gave multiple ways back to the Father, and he doesn't here either. It's through him, a combination of the word of God and the spirit of God, remaking, rebirthing, recreating you. This is a glimpse into what God plans to do with all of his creation, to remake it, beginning with us. And what is the authority that Jesus has for this? Well, as he tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. How can Jesus 
be so sure about this? How can he tell Nicodemus this is the way it happens? Because he is the word made flesh come from heaven to earth to tell us exactly how it works. All through the scriptures, God sends prophets. Prophets are messengers of God. They have the revelation of God. God reveals himself to the prophets, and they speak the words of God. And here we have Jesus, the living word of God, bringing us the revelation of God. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves because John didn't lay all this out in John chapter 1. So let's return back to John 1 and, and pick up after John has told us about the hope of being born again from above. But most people reject this light, whether it's due to pride or ignorance, love of sin or other reasons. But the great revelation that John is building up to begins to be understood as we get to John 1.14. And it will be fully understood when we hit John 1.17. In John 1.14, he continues. John 1.14, he says, The Word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And here we begin to see the awesomeness that John has been leading up to. The always existing word came to his creation in flesh, in human form. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, he lays this out for us in a little more detail in the, in the hymn there about Jesus coming to earth. But here, coming in the flesh, something that he had not previously been, and he lived temporarily. He took up residence in a tented or tabernacle temporary home or shelter. We've talked many, many times about this imagery all through Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, of the tabernacle and the temporary tabernacle or tent becoming a, a permanent temple, a dwelling place for God. And then in the New Testament, the believer becoming the temple of God for God to live in. And then in the book of Revelation, that there will be no need for a temple because we will live and dwell with God himself. Just like in the Garden of Eden, there was no temple because the garden was the temple to live with God in. So this idea that, that Jesus comes and he tabernacles or he, he tents, he lives temporarily here to bring God's revelation, to bring the light into darkness. And yet, John says, he still remains the one and only son. In other words, he was still the eternal divine word, still God, but now God in the flesh. The older translations often put only begotten. That can be a little confusing. And some people have taken that and kind of twisted it to mean something that it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that, that Jesus was like the first created son of God. No, as we've already seen in John 1, 1, Jesus always existed. And so he's the one and only son. He was still the eternal divine word, still God, but now God in the flesh. So John, the apostle who saw this with his own eyes, okay, remember John was one of the apostles and disciples who walked and talked with Jesus. He was the one called the beloved who was very close to Jesus. He was there when Jesus did his ministry. He says, the word who is the son coming from the father as direct, special, and supernatural revelation came and lived on planet earth. This is the birth of Christ. Though John has not yet said this is Jesus. 
when, as Thomas Torrance says, the Lord of the covenant became his own human partner to fulfill the covenant made with humanity. The eternal became temporal, bringing the temporal human history into the eternal. Uh, it's a lot to unpack and, and to think through what he's saying there. But you need to understand that all through the scripture, from the beginning, when God first created Adam and Eve, and they messed it up, they blew it, they rebelled, they sinned in the garden. Ever since then, God's plan was to mend that fracture. Genesis 3.15, often called the, the first gospel, the Proto-Evangelion, the idea that God is going to crush the serpent's head, and in the process his heel will be bruised. You read the prophets and you continually see that there's this talk about the shoots and stump of Jesse coming, that even though Israel has rebelled, that Israel will be cut down, but not completely cut off because God has promised to do something special through Israel and bring salvation even to the Gentiles. So all through uh, the book of Isaiah comes to mind very quickly, the, the servant songs that are out there. Who is this servant of God who's going to come? Well, it's none other than Jesus, the Emmanuel. The one that John in his gospel is calling the word, the revelation of God, come out of heaven, in flesh, mind-boggling. Just as the tabernacle was a real feature of the Israelite camp and enshrined the manifestation of the glory and the presence of God, so was Christ in real presence among men. And in and from him shone the divine glory, the glory primarily of love and God's greatness. Thomas Torrance says, In the becoming flesh, we have something unique, a relation between God and man, the creator and creature, which has no parallel anywhere in creation. This is why the Jews couldn't accept it. This is why it's ridiculous to the Greeks. Because it's mind-boggling that God, the creator, would become one of his creation. How can the creator become his own creation? And yet that's exactly what John is getting at. That's exactly what Christianity holds to. That's exactly what separates Christianity from everything else. Because that is what we hold to. John the Baptist clearly understood this, as the Apostle John tells us. He tells us as he continues in, in John 1, verses 15 to 17, that John testified concerning him, and he exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me, has surpassed me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace after grace from his fullness, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Thus, John the Baptist understood that the word existed before he, John the Baptist, but was greater than him. And here, for the first time in John's gospel, we find the name Jesus, the other name, if you will, of the word, the human name of the physical manifestation of God as a man. You see, up until this time, up until God the Son became a human, he wasn't known as See, when he was born as a human being, 
that's when suddenly he catches on. Inside, he's still God. But he changes form. It's like changing skin. You know, if you have apps or you have Bible software or you have all these different things, you can change the skin, right? You, you change how it looks. You change the appearance. But does it change the function and the purpose of the software or the app? No, it doesn't. It looks different. You change the colors. You know, you like your grays and your blues. You like your orange and your greens, whatever, right? That's the skin, right? But it doesn't change what the app does. It doesn't change the function. It doesn't change what it is. In this case, it doesn't change who Jesus is. He's God. The difference is he changed his skin. He got human skin. John the Baptist understood this. The Apostle John understood this. Jesus obviously understood this. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said, I assure you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, we don't have time this morning to completely unpack this. This could be a complete message in and of itself. But Jesus here is saying, before Abraham. Now, remember, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew goes all the way back to Abraham to demonstrate who Jesus is. Okay? Jesus is the Messiah promised, okay? That when God made a, a covenant with Abraham, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this. Well, here, John goes way beyond that. He says, before Abraham, I am. And when he uses that I am, we're talking about how God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus. I am that I am. I am the self-existing one. I am the one that always existed. Just like in John chapter 1, when the Apostle John is saying about Jesus, who is this word? This word is the one that was always existing and is still existing. And that's basically what God is telling Moses. Who am I? I'm the one that was always existing and then still existing. That's the one talking to you, Moses. So think about that for a minute. So that's what Jesus says. That's me. And in John 17, 5, he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So you say, well, Kevin, that's just one verse in John 1, 1. Well, obviously it's not just one verse because in John 17, 5, we have the words of Jesus himself who says the same thing, that he was with God, had in glory with God before anything was even created. So the Apostle John continues in John 1, verse 18, and he says, No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. So here in, in 18, one purpose of the incarnation is explicitly stated that this was God's word to human beings. This was he who has declared, that is, open to mortals the divine mysteries. The clearly attested um, idea or reading here is that he is the one and only son birth son no son as in relationship remember the first thing we talked about in verse one okay that he was with god that's a relationship what kind of relationship do they have they have a relationship where the son has submitted himself to the father like what, what, what do you mean kevin okay they're living together eternally and the Son, in submission to the Father, we have this all through the Gospels, in submission to the Father, the Son comes to earth 
as the Word made flesh, as submission to the Father, the Son, still in the same family, right? Same God. The Son goes to the cross in submission to the Father. Is he less? No. Because he's not only was with God, he is God. He just took on a new skin. As the word, his life on earth is a revelation as the one and only son, one and only God, incarnate. He can be the lamb of God, able to take away the sins of the world in John 1, It's because of who he is that his works become signs and his personal claims can be taken at fullest value. Why? Because he's not just a man. He's God who has shown up. And how do you know that he's God? By what he does. Because no one else can do what he does except God. Who controls the waters? God does. Who can turn one thing into another? The creator can. And that's who he is. And thus the revelation of God the Father in his Son comes as the fulcrum in God's plan to redeem the world. For though Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 agrees with John... We have much more than that. Look at Hebrews 1. It says, Long ago God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. Stay there for a minute. All through the Old Testament, as I was saying, we have God speaking in different ways through different people, different prophets, okay? He spoke to angels, visions, dreams, all different things. But look what he says here. He continues and he says, in these last days, are we in the last days? Yes, we're in the last days. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. So here we see that Jesus is God's revelation in the last days. You don't need to be looking around for another prophet somewhere. Jesus is the prophet. He is the revelation from God. He is the words jumped off the page that became life. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. That means he is identical to God. He is God, sustaining all things by his powerful word. We find that in John 1 also. Who holds the whole world together? The word does. Jesus does. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Who did we read was sitting at the right hand of God in John chapter 1? Another other than the word. Who does... Hebrews say is sitting at the right hand of God, none other than Jesus. Who is the word? The word is Jesus. John agrees in verse 14 and 17 of chapter 1. We miss the point if we don't see that in God's plan, the incarnation was the way to the crucifixion, which was the way to the resurrection, which was the way to the ascension, which was the only way to your own resurrection. So the incarnation, the sweet birth of a little boy in Bethlehem, 2,000 years ago, is not only a time for resounding joy, it's also a witness of the continuing action of a good and gracious God who is intent on repairing the damage done by his prized creatures, humanity, in the rebellion in the garden. All that happened up to this point in human history was God's action setting up the stage to bring about what man had failed to bring about time after time. It doesn't matter who you consider in the storyline of history. You can take the man after God's own heart, King David, and look at his own life. 
and you'll find that he didn't measure up. You'll find that David had sin in his life. You'll find that David was not the perfect king. You'll find that God did not allow him to build the temple because he was a man of war. He had shed much blood, which ultimately is, is not in the ultimate plan of God. The first bloodshed by man occurs with Cain killing his brother Abel. The man of war and the man after God's own heart, King David, was unable to fulfill what was needed to be a king, a prophet, a priest, to bring the people back to their God. His son, the wisest man, King Solomon, was unable to fulfill what was needed to bring back the people to their creator. And so all through history, the biblical history, the biblical story, you see people looking for the Messiah, the anointed one. And surprise upon surprises, and suddenly he shows up, and it's none other than God in flesh. Because no man could do it. And so God himself had to come. If you study the prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah, you will find similarly that God had said, I myself will come, and I will accomplish this and finish this, because you are not able. You can't do it. And that is the beauty of the extent of God's love. That he made a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the way down, and David and Solomon, and he made a covenant with these people, but get this picture for a minute. Heaven and humanity. Heaven is making a covenant, a promise, an agreement with humanity. And so heaven has a side to fulfill. That's, that's God's part. I'll protect. I'll provide. All right? I'll bless. And humanity has, has a part to fulfill. Be faithful. Of course, none of them ever were, right? And so in God's love, because humanity was never able to maintain faithfulness, but God wanted humanity with him, steps down and says, I will have to become the human who can be faithful to my own covenant. Now just think about that. And so God the Son, the Word, steps down to become the human to be faithful to the covenant made with God and to God the Father. And as you'll find out later, if you know the gospel story doll, we also know that God, the Holy Spirit, comes upon and empowers Jesus for his ministry as well. And so this story, this love story, this story of God in the world, the word in the world, is about God fulfilling his plan for the world from the beginning. That there was no way for mankind straighten out. All you have to do is read the newspapers and you see that we're still as corrupt as ever. All you have to do is stay in any church group, group of Christians long enough to find out even with the spirit indwelling us, we fail to faithfully fulfill what God has called us to do. 
but if you think about it, you know that there is no human being to fulfill it. What Adam and Eve did in the garden, you and I would have done as well, sooner or later. And so Jesus, as the Word made flesh, steps into human history and becomes that And so this is the gloriousness of the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, that it was the path to conquering sin and death, and it was a resounding voice to the world shouting that there's a king, and he's coming back for his people. And that's where we live today, in the in-between. The word came the first time, started as a little baby, went to the cross, went to the grave, rose from the dead, ascended back to heaven where he came from, And he'll be coming back again to judge the darkness that refuses to accept the light. Thomas Torrance again says, When we begin with his incarnation and with his birth at Bethlehem, we're beginning right away with the atonement. For his birth as the beginning of his incarnate person is one end of the atoning work with the resurrection and ascension as the other And so this Christmas season, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, the birth exists for the crucifixion and the resurrection. They go together. They're two sides of the same coin. And so as we think of Christmas, please don't just think of a little baby in a manger. The little baby grew up. The little baby only came to be the body that would be on the cross, to be the body that would be resurrected, to be the body that points the way and paves the way for you and I to be rejoined with our Creator and spend eternity, life, eternal life, not this life, eternal life with Him. And that begins the day that you understand what Jesus tried to help Nicodemus understand and are born again or born from above or born by the Spirit, and your eyes are opened, and you move from walking in a way of darkness and the ways of the world to walking in the light, in the life of Jesus Christ. And so this Christmas season, the greatest Christmas gift there can ever possibly be is for someone to go from walking in darkness to walking in light. Because that's why Jesus was born that day in Bethlehem, so that you could no longer walk in darkness, but walk in light. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we come to you this morning, and <clears throat> the truth is that our hearts are deceptive. We think we know them sometimes, but often don't. It's hard to figure ourselves out. And so, I certainly am not here to try to figure out anybody this morning, Lord. But you know the hearts of every person in this room. And God, I pray that right now your spirit would work in each of our hearts. Your spirit would shine light. Find any hidden darkness in our souls, Lord. And I pray that if there's anybody this morning, Lord, who who has not moved from darkness to light, that God, this morning would be the day that your light shone so brightly in their lives, Lord, that they they reached out, Lord, and they grasped your hand. 
that hand resurrected from the dead. And they cried out to you and said, God, I want that resurrection life. I don't want to walk in darkness anymore. Please take away my sins. I know that you died on the cross to pay for them. I know there's nothing I can do. There's no good thing I can do to ever pay for them. Well, you died on the cross. Forgive me, Father. Take away my sins. Come into my life and be my Lord, be my Savior. Be the light that shows me how to live my life. And if, if that's you this morning and, and you actually understand those words and you're crying out to God, I want you to know that, that God hears your cries and God answers and he is faithful. And when you cry out to God asking him to come in and be the light and the Lord that guides your life and gives you life, that is exactly what he will do. But you need to understand that when you cry out to God and you say that, that means that he is your Lord and King. That means that that is who is supposed to guide your life. Otherwise, you, you didn't mean it. It wasn't true. It was a lie. To have that new birth, to be born again, to be a part of God's family, simply means that you receive, as John said in 1.12, you receive and believe. So if you receive and believe this morning who Jesus is, this is the word, this is God come in the flesh to save you from your sins, you too can have that eternal life. Father, for those of us who are believers, I pray that you would empower us through your spirit, that we would stop hindering your spirit, Lord, that you would give us clarity of thought in this journey called life here on earth, Lord, that we would know where you're leading us and we would follow your light the lighted path, and stay out of the dark woods. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.